Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, April 3rd on today's show. I want to offer my thoughts on this weekend's Miami Open singles finals. Yes, each of the matches were straight set victories. Nevertheless, there were plenty of twists and turns for us to discuss here on today's show. I also want to get into the tactics employed by both Petra Kvitova and Daniil Medvedev on their way to the winner's circle this weekend for Petra Kvitova. The biggest headline, of course, was the twist and turns that came in that first set tiebreak. Kvitova surviving multiple set point deficits to overcome Elena Rabakina, take a 16-14 first set breaker. She then earns an early break in the second, separates herself from there. What an impressive 7-6-6-2 victory for the 33-year-old veteran. And on today's show, of course, we can get into Kvitova's Hall of Fame resume, where it stands following her run to the title in Miami. But again, I want to focus on the tactics. How did Petra Kvitova go about breaking down the power of Elena Rabakina? How did she go about preventing Rabakina from dictating? in the way Rabakina is so has proven so thoroughly capable of doing over the course not just of 2023, but these last six months, nine months most pressingly, obviously I would say since really the start of the 2020 season, Petra Kvitova did a lot of things well to take Elena Rabakina's biggest strengths away. And I actually do think there's a few insights we can glean now. Not every player on the WTA Tour possesses the Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club t- uh, power capabilities of a Petra Kvitova, but still, there were little things Petra Kvitova continued to do that, to me, I, I, I guess we've seen this these flaws, I suppose, in Rabakina's game. I don't want to say weaknesses, but opportunities to expose or prevent her from doing the things she does best. Perhaps we've seen shades of them in the past, but I thought Kvitova did a particularly good job of highlighting them throughout the course of her victory. Again, I want to get into the tactics, get into the Kvitova resume. We can talk about where Elena Rabakina leaves this sunshine swing or is headed after this sunshine swing, I suppose, as well. Those were, of course, the headlines from the women's singles final on the men's side of things. God, Daniil Medvedev, the exclamation point on what has been one of the best two-month runs we have seen on the ATP Tour, I'd venture to say in the past decade. I don't think it's hyperbole to say that. Obviously, Djokovic, Nadal have had these sort of Federer in the early parts of the 2010s, uh, and even in 2017 was capable of having this sort of two-month stretch, and oftentimes their two-month stretches involved success at a major. I know Daniil Medvedev did not have that over the course of February and March, but, you know, he starts the season five and two. He's now won 24 of his past 25 matches, and I saw the stat going around, what was it, like something 15,000 miles traveled, whatever it may be. After a disappointing 2022 fall. After a disappointing month of January for Daniil Medvedev, he's reminded all of us that he is smack dab in the prime of his career and just about every hard court event. Of course, they all run through Novak Djokovic, but you're going to probably have to get through Daniil Medvedev as well on your way if you want to end up in the winner's circle. And, you know, again, Medvedev was just relentless against Yannick Sinner. I want to contextualize what I mean by relentless in his discipline throughout the course of his straight win over the young Italian. Now, look, Sinner leaves the sunshine swing in a really good position, and I've advocated advocated for Sinner doesn't feel like the right 
framing of what I've done. I've always highlighted what I think Yannick Sinner will be, not just throughout the course of this 2023 season, three years, five years, throughout the course of his career. That's the framework I like to look at with Yannick Sinner because I do think he's such a special talent. Disappointing, certainly, to see him go out in the fashion that he did. Nevertheless, it was a really fun first set. Plenty of things for us to break down, plenty of insight to be gleaned. Again, that's what I want to do on today's show. I want to break down the Miami Open singles finals. It's going to be a shorter episode of the podcast. For what it's worth, we have a jam-packed week planned. I've already got David Kane booked for Tuesday. Now, whether that's a mini-break podcast episode, a great shot podcast episode, that's still TBD, but he and others going to be joining me this week to offer our reflections from the first third of the 2023 season and to offer a little tease of the content you all can expect here this week on on today's show, I want to take our first look. You know how excited I was to put this list together. We have our updated 2023 specific tennis abstract top 25 clubs. That's right. Through the first third of the season, we now have an acceptable sized sample size for me to just go with 2023 specific stats. And we can look at who are the 8 to 11 players on the ATP WTA Tour who have been exceptional, not just at one specific trait. They're not just serve bots. They're not just grinders. They've been good at everything, you know, top 25 or better in both hold percentage and break percentage. We have the updated tennis abstract numbers. I have the numbers available for all of you Crack Rackets listeners here today. I hope you'll all allow me and afford me the opportunity to nerd out. I'll do that at the end of today's show. But again, It's going to be a shorter podcast. We're going to save breaking down the five tour-level events we have this week. Yeah, Sunshine Swing's over. Doesn't mean tour play stops. Five tour-level events. We'll focus on them more tomorrow. I'm hoping to get Nate Walrath, our dear friend from Tennis Point, back on the show at some point this week as well to help me break it all down. But at the end of today's show, I'll just give you a look. Who's playing this week? Make the pitch for why you shouldn't take the week off from watching tennis. Yes, the Sunshine Swing is over. But as always... Always, we turn the calendar. We are already jumping headfirst into the clay court season. You should never jump headfirst onto a clay court because that will really hurt. Nevertheless, Houston, Esterol, uh, Charleston, you name it. We'll talk about it here on today's show. Still going to do all that and maintain a shorter episode for all of you listeners today. Of course, the reason we're able to do this day in, day out, the reason we feel the inspiration here each and every day at Crack Rackets to talk about everything happening across levels in the tennis world is because of the support we get from all of you. We owe it to all of you tennis fans to make sure you remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. For what it's worth, there are some metrics out there. And you can never be too certain with every metric uh, that exists, but there are some metrics out there that call this the number two tennis podcast in the world. And I'm immensely flattered for that fact. I think a lot of that has to do with our guests who consistently show up well-informed, well-prepared, always so kind to take it in whatever direction we want to go here at Crack Rackets. But more than anything, it has to do with you listeners who continue to tune in day in, day out. And again, it was fun. I was joking around with Dalton. I was joking around with Westoff. Will I still be doing this mini-break podcast 10 years from now, 15 years from now, each and every day? I certainly hope so because that's what the tennis world provides. New matches, Monday only matters till Tuesday, et cetera, et cetera. I know that. I, as such, we here at Crack Rackets know it's our job to ensure that we you have all the information you need each and every day. And this mini break podcast has become the perfect vessel for us to provide exactly those updates. Thank you to all of you who tune in day in, day out, who make it possible for metrics like that to exist. Of course, a shout out, as always, to our dear friends at Tennis Point for their continued support. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. All right. After maybe the most obvious humble brag in tennis podcasting history. Let's talk about the results we saw at the 2023 Miami Open. And let's just do the Petra Kvitova Hall of Fame resume conversation quickly. Now, all of you mini break listeners heard me do a little bit on this last week. It's not even a question 
that Petra Kvitova is going to be in the Hall of Fame. I mean, she's been a top 15 player for 15 years. She's been a top eight player for what was it, like a seven, eight-year stretch consecutively. I'll give you the number here in a moment. But obviously, when you reach three slam finals, when you win two slam titles, when with this title in Miami, you now become the third winningest player in WTA history at the 1,000 level. And with her eighth 1,000 title, I believe she now just trails uh, Serena Williams and I believe Victoria Azarenka, yeah, who has 10. She ties Simona Halp, third most 1,000 level titles. Uh, Again, uh, she now has uh, nine overall. Petra Kvitova won her 30th WTA career title. This century, only Serena, Enin, Venus, Kleisters, and Sharapova have more. Whenever those are the players you're trailing, pretty certain you're going to be on all the Hall of Fame list. She's the second player to win Miami after turning 33, the only other person to do it. Oh, just Serena Williams. She, it's a player who finished inside of the top 10, 10 different times in her career. And I have the official stat in front of me now. She was top 10 five consecutive years from 2011 through 2015. She was then top 10 for three consecutive years, 2018 through 2020. Of course, she's been top 30 in the world since the start of 2011. So Again, it's been more than a decade of consistency and closer to a decade and a half than a decade for Petra Kvitova near or at the top of the women's game. She's, you know, someone who played the Summer Olympics multiple times, won a bronze medal in semifinal uh, uh, and made the semifinals back in 2016. There's no question. I know she was never world number one in singles. She did reach as high as world number two back in October of 2011. There's just no, like, she didn't need this Miami Open run to have already solidified her spot at the in the Hall of Fame. And the Tennis Hall of Fame has very arbitrary criteria. At some point, if there's free time here in 2023, we'll do a Hall of Fame podcast. We'll talk about the players who aren't in it, who maybe should be. We'll talk about the players who are in it, who maybe shouldn't be. And we'll talk about who are the next best prospects on the rise. Who can you expect to get into the Hall of Fame? That podcast screams Ben Rothenberg. So he will be who joins me on that show to have that conversation as he and I have talked about Hall of Fame in the past. But again, just to put the final feather in the cap of that conversation, regardless of her victory over Elena Rabakina on Saturday, Petra Kvitova was unequivocally a Hall of Famer, but I mean, she certainly looked the part over the course of this Miami Open run, and you look for Kvitova, who drops just one set, just one set on her way to the title. Now, she only faced one top 10 player, and that top 10 player obviously was Rabakina in the final. But it's not as though she had an easy, you know, a cakewalk. She faced Naskova, one of the most talented young teenagers on the WTA tour. She faced Donna Vekic in round number two, a win over the rising 22-year-old Varvara Gracheva in round number three. And then three sets over Ekat. Again, we know when Ekaterina Alexandrova plays well, she certainly can look like a top 10 player. She had the power to make Kvitova uncomfortable. She was the only player to take a set off of Kvitova at this event speaks to the fact that that is not an easy match. We talk about top 20 being the better barometer for, okay, that's a really tough tournament. You know, again, six of her, uh, three of her six matches were against top 20 players, and she faced someone in Serana Kirstea who certainly played the part of top 20 player over the course of the past month, reaching quarterfinals or further at both events of the Sunshine Swing. Looking back at this run at the end of the year, we may look at the seeds and say, well, she only faced one top 10 seed on her way to the Miami title, but... This was a serious run for Petra Kvitova, and again, in terms of breaking down the tactics of the finals, of the final, excuse me, the thing that impressed me the most was Petra Kvitova was relentless in attacking the Elena Rabakina forehand. I thought Kvitova dominated the backhand-to-forehand exchanges with Rabakina. Now, that's not to say when Elena Rabakina could land a first serve when she had an easy look at a first forehand that she wasn't effective with that first forehand. Of course, Elena Rabakina was. But Kvitova winning, and again, Kvitova the lefty, Rabakina the righty. So it's Kvitova back, it's backhand-to-forehand exchanges in each of these rallies. I actually thought the player with the backhand was 
on the winning side of most of those exchanges when things were at relatively neutral, though there weren't a ton of neutral rallies in this match because both players play, as David Kane likes to refer to, big babe tennis. There was a lot of first strike, not a ton of physicality in the traditional sense of 15, 20 ball rallies in this match. And yet, when each player were playing with depth down the center, I thought whoever had the backhand was just a little bit briefer in their backswing, was able to drive through the ball regardless of the depth of the opponent's shot. And again, I thought Kvitova did a better job of finding those patterns, of finding the Elena Rabakina forehand, of forcing whenever she was attacking Elena Rabakina on the run, it was never stretch Rabakina to the backhand wing. It was always stretch Rabakina to her forehand side. And then again, Kvitova just had a great day at the office on her backhand wing. You you look at the game she broke for four all, and for the record, Kvitova came out swinging. She hits two backhand winners in the first game to get to fifteen forty. Now Rabakina comes up with a couple of good first serves, and you know again is able to grind her way out of that fifteen forty deficit. They're on serve till four all, but what happens in that four all game? Well, it always helps when Elena Rabakina throws in a double fault. But what were the two pad or the the two most significant points? A, I think it was first point of the game. What does Petra Kvitova do? Steps up, backhand, inside in return winner. You know, I think it was the fifteen thirty point was the second thirty uh, fifteen point for Rabakina. What was the what was the next thing she did? Oh, Rabakina throws in a double fault, but thirty all again. First return deep down the center to the forehand of Rabakina. She pops that one up. Kvitova. Deep backhand into the deep, you know, again, deep at the feet of Elena Rabakina, but more center forehand wing. Then it sets up an inside out forehand. And Kvitova, rather than going inside, or, or rather than going inside in, staying relentless with that a forehand pattern, that's when she decided to mix things up, when she had that advantageous ball. You know, again, that sets up the break point. That gets her over the finish line. She gets the break 4-5-4. Four, four. Now, credit to Elena Rabakina, who, as I mentioned, Stepped up on a couple of backhand returns, was gifted a couple of Petra Kvitova forehand errors via the uh, Rabakina depth off of her first strike. It was really interesting to see the player with the backhand actually be in the more advantageous position in the rally. But, I mean, again, this is where you have to credit Petra Kvitova, who was just better at finding those patterns, particularly with her first serve. I thought she was really comfortable hitting both the slight, uh, excuse me, the flat out wide on the deuce side for Kvitova, but more importantly, hitting that slice into the forehand body on the tee. She did a great job of jamming Elena Rabakina on her serve, forcing Rabakina to, again, have to abbreviate things, not get a full swing into it. Now, again, the abbreviated backhand for Rabakina, she's barely compromised even when she does have to abbreviate that backswing. That's why finding that forehand hip is so important. I mean, case in point, how does the tie break end? 16-14, Kvitova takes it. Two forehand errors from Elena Rabakina, back-to-back, to end the set. You know, one of them off a really good serve, first strike with depth to the uh, from Kvitova. Not much Rabakina can do there, but that was the winning pattern. Kvitova found it on 15-14. Again, Kvitova connects on a backhand return with depth. Rabakina misses the forehand. She sends it long uh, in that to set up the the to give her that definitive mini break and to make it 15-14. And look, I'm not going to go through every set point opportunity, every blown chance because a lot of the set points were just eight seven Rabakina led, but now Kvitova has two serves. Okay, now it's nine eight Kvitova leads, but Rabakina has two serves. And again, this was big babe tennis. This was Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. First strike, bring your weapons, let's have a gunfight. Kvitova was better down the home stretch of that first set. And then credit to Petra Kvitova, who did not let her foot off the gas to start the second. Again, gets an immediate break of Elena Rabakina. You could just tell Rabakina was losing it in her legs. You know, meanwhile, Kvitova could taste the winner's circle. There was just an urgency from Kvitova at this stage of her career, perhaps, you know, after the Cincinnati final loss last summer, just knowing how difficult these opportunities are to come by. She sensed the moment. She sensed she had her window, and she stayed relentless, and she stayed really consistent with her first serve. Kvitova, an exceptional service performance, made 77% of her first serves, went over 75% of both her first and second serve points, faced just two break points throughout the course of the match. And again, that's because she did a great job of mixing up her locations, but 
most importantly, when it was crunch time, a 30-all, a 30-15, just a moment for Kvitova to separate herself, right hip of Elena Rybakina. That's what she chose to attack. And while not everyone has the big lefty first serve, Petra Kvitova, an all-time first serve, uh, you know, certainly if you were to give a gif in her Hall of Fame career, it would probably be a gif of that serve, which is probably the defining shot, the serve to set up the first forehand. But there are other players with good serves. And again, I think if I'm scouting Rabakina moving forward, look, if you sit a ball up high to the forehand, you're in more trouble than if you sit a ball up high to her backhand. But the Elena Rabakina backhand return is not the side I'm hitting towards. And when I'm attacking Elena Rabakina, I'm attacking her through that forehand wing. Again, it's not a revelation, but it was particularly well employed by Petra Kvitova or, you know, First serve into the body, first strike, stretch backhand, second ball in play, but force her back and hit the running forehand where she has a bigger backswing, where she is a little bit less consistent. Obviously, you want to just get Rabakana on the run in general, of course, but I'm telling you, forehand corner. Kvitova exposed it well. Six and two victory for Petra Kvitova. I already mentioned all of the accolades. You know, again, third most 1,000 level titles in WTA Tour history. I know they only started playing the 1,000s around 2009, or that's when they really started keeping track, but speaks to how she's a defining player of her era. Again, Serena, Azarenka, Halep, Kvitova. That's that's the list. Like that that's the elite list of the twenty tens. There it is. And obviously Wozniaki's of the world, the Pliskovas and Radvanskas of the world. Kim Kleisters when she wanted to pop in early on in the decade as well. Like, yeah, they were all really good as well, but who are the definitive Hall of Famers of the era? I mean, obviously Serena Venus, duh. But from the 2010s in particular, just what they accomplished in the 2010s, I mean, I think you go with Azarenka, you go Halep, you go Kvitova. Those are the first three names that come off your tongue, right? And Kerber's obviously, I think, got to be on that list as well. I apologize for forgetting about her immediately. But, like, that's the four. I throw Wozniacki probably on there as well as five because she did get to world number one. She did get that slam title. She did compete in multiple slams. She did win multiple 1,000-level titles. There's your list. Like, if if the Hall of Fame is the Hall of as, – as Ben Rothenberg likes to say, it's got to be the Hall of Fame, right? Not the Hall of Very Good. And the Karolina Pliskova argument is going to be a fascinating one because I think the Hall of Fame – do you define your generation? Can you tell the story – of that player's time on the, you know, you want to say the decade, it's never that clean, but let's say a player's pro career lasts 14 years. Can you tell the story of those 14 years without having to mention that player's name? Can we tell the stories of the 2010s without mentioning Karolina Pliskova's name? Ooh, it's a fascinating question. I mean, she's right up there with the Ferrers of the world, right? Although the difference is she reached world number one. I mean, again, this is why I want to have this podcast conversation separately. Nevertheless, again, it's not a conversation you have to have about Petra Kvitova. Kvitova now 34 and 11 uh, since the start of her run to the Eastbourne title last summer. 34 and 11. I mean, come on. She's won 75% of her matches over a 45-match sample size. She's now in this, you know, again, I mentioned the 34 and 11. She's made three different finals. She's won two titles. She's made the quarterfinals now in six of the 13 events that she's played. Obviously, three of those quarterfinals coming in Cincinnati, Indian Wells, and Miami. The four, Another one coming in Ostrava, Eastbourne. Always a loaded draw given the lack of warm-up grass court events prior to Wimbledon. She has been top 10 good over the course of the last nine months and that's why you look at the ELO ratings right now. Petra Vitva sixth in overall ELO ratings. She's currently third in 2023 specific results. It's crazy that she's up to only 10th in the live rankings following this Miami title. Although, again, it's not a big gap between her at 10th and, you know, even Anjabur at 5 and wouldn't shock me if at the end of this clay court season, you see Kvitova ahead of Jabur, just given how many points Jabur has to defend, how few really Kvitova has from last year. She's positioned herself perfectly. And I'll say it again, third oldest player in the top 50, oldest player in the top 10, only 30 plus player inside the top 15. 
And yet with her serve, Petra Kvitova right now, sixth in 2023 specifically in hold percentage. I mean, she's playing elite power tennis and she's fit and she's healthy. She deployed exceptional tactics. She was relentless, never took her foot off the gas. And again, credit to Kvitova, ninth 1,000 level title of her career, 30th title of her career overall, Hall of Famer, no doubt about it. As for Rabakina, I mean, look, again, if you can, if you have some weapons, you can take some time away from her. Yeah, she gets a little slap happy. She didn't serve particularly well, only made 54% of her first serves. Again, wasn't the most dynamic in the outer thirds, particularly on that forehand wing, but she didn't play well in this match. Like, she never found her rhythm, and yet if she wins that first set, who's to say she doesn't run away with the second there? That first set, you go 16-14 in a first set breaker, so much momentum on the line. You know, Rabakina just wasn't able to capture it. And look, Rabakina this season, 21-5 and overall. That was the first breaker she's lost. She's 7-1 and now overall on the year, 40-14 and since the start of last year's Wimbledon. I mean, up to number seven, a new career high in the live rankings. She's second in overall ELO, first in 2023 specific ELO. She's the current 2021, uh, 2023 wins leader. She's got 21 wins on the year. Gracheva, if you include qualifying, has 21 as well, but we won't for the sake of that stat. She uh, right now has eight top 20 wins, one more than Sabalenka, but eight and four overall versus top 20 players. And again, 12 of her 21 matches have been against top 20 players. She has had the most difficult strength of schedule to date, and she's beating all of those top 20 players. Elena Rabakina is the biggest winner of the first third of the season. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's just no doubt everyone has her in that elite tier one moving forward, and it's because she's played herself into that part of the conversation. So a huge sunshine swing for Rabakina. Yes, she falls short of capturing both titles. Nevertheless, again, exceptional play uh, from Rabakina, and I think it's safe to say the best is still yet to come in her career. On the men's side of things, Honestly, I think this is going to go a little quicker. Daniil Medvedev has just been this guy now for two months consecutively. And you look for Daniil Medvedev now 29-3 and overall here in 2023. He's won 24 of his last 25 matches. You look for Daniil Medvedev 11-2 against top 20 opponents this season. Wins over Djokovic. Wins over Sinner. Win, you know, multiple wins, by the way, over Sinner. Indoors and outdoors. I mean, 11-2, and two, the next closest guy, Carlos Alcaraz, has six top 20 wins right now. And again, for Daniil Medvedev, 29-3, and three, what, 13 of his 32 matches, so about a third of them, a little more, have about 40%, we'll say, have come against top 20 opponents. Like, he's playing the best, he's beating the best, he's breaking serve over 35% of the time against the best. And look, I mean, against Yannick Sinner, that's what he did so particularly well, right? He goes down a break 3-2 in that opening set, and what happens? Medvedev goes into backboard mode. Medvedev, you know, whether it was the track down, flick of the wrist, drop shot uh, early on in the game when, you know, or Sinner hits the drop shot and Medvedev tracks it down and hits the flick cross court, I should say, for the winner, whether it was, you know, again, just he can be 13, 14, 15 feet behind the baseline on that return of serve. But if he gets his hands on the ball, that ball is landing at your feet. And now all of a sudden you thought you had all this time, all this open space, but you really don't because of the depth of the return that he hit. You know, after Sinner goes up a break 3-2, Medvedev breaks Sinner immediately back. And look, it was very clear, and Sinner calls for the trainer 4-3 there, uh, trailing to Medvedev. It was very clear Sinner was ailing physically, and he talked openly about those ailments in his post-match press conference. And look, that's what a Carlos Alcaraz match A will do to you. B, that's what a month consecutively on the road and playing all of these matches and being in hotel rooms, you're going to the opportunity to get sick. It happens, no doubt about it. I'm not making excuses for Sinner. I'm simply acknowledging Okay, he was physically compromised. So what did Daniil Medvedev do? He went into backboard mode. He said, "That's fine. Hit your, hit your four ridiculous. You know, hit your backhand cross, backhand cross. I'm gonna go down the center. So you're gonna open up and go with a forehand short angle. And now I'm gonna hit a full on the sprint on the run forehand pass. And 
You know, we saw Medvedev with the incredible down-the-line forehand pass on his way to securing that opening break in set number two, although for what it's worth, Sinner did get that break immediately back, although I think it went Medvedev broke for 2-1, Sinner broke back for 2-all, Medvedev then broke again for 3-2, and just... It's relentless. We've talked about Daniil Medvedev so much. What's so amazing to me is that with all the moving parts of his forehand, when he hits it on the run, that on-the-run passing shot on the forehand wing, which is what he baits you into attacking him with, he can hit it down the line. He can beat you to the spot full sprint across court because of how much power he can generate with his frame. Obviously, you know, not only can he grind you down, but then you look for Medvedev, who only made 59% 59% of his first serves, won 86, 87% of his first serve points. You know, won eight points off of aces and just, he has the biggest weapon on the court, which is his first serve. He's more physical than you. And again, if this match tells Sinner anything, it's that he's just not where he needs to be quite yet physically. But man, Medvedev is. And you look for Daniil Medvedev. I know I listed some of these stats last week, but Medvedev now since the start of the 2019 summer when he really started to make his run, right? Finals of the City Open loss to Kyrgios, the Nadal matches uh, in Toronto in, at the U.S. Open, how he ends his year, how he goes on in 2020, etc. The Medvedev run really began in that August of 2019 and uh, in that, yeah, July, August of 2019. And six that, since that time, Daniil Medvedev, 171 and 40 overall. He's won 81% of his hardcourt matches, 171 and 40 overall. At the Masters level, he's 56 and 13, 56 and 13 overall at the Masters level. So he's played 18 different Masters events. He's made at least the quarterfinals, the final eight of these Masters, 13 times. 13 of his last 18. How many times has he made the final of these Masters events in his last 18? Eight times. Five different titles. Eight finals, 13 quarterfinals in his last 18 Masters 1000 hardcourt events. It's Djokovician. It's Nadalian on clay. It's all, I mean, again, Daniil Medvedev's a Hall of Famer. And I think we're starting to come to grips with that as a tennis populist. Certainly, he's got a major title now, multiple major finals. He's reached world number one. He just put together a 24-1 two-month stretch. That's him again, beat Djokovic, win a Sunshine Swing 1,000-level title, accumulate plenty of signature wins along the way. 56-13 at Masters 1,000 events since the start of 2019. That is a four-year run. Uh, three and a half, if you want to say, well, COVID wiped out the middle portion of 2020. Well, it didn't really wipe out that much of the heart. I guess it wiped out the Sunshine Swing, but still. Eight finals in his last 18 Masters 1000 events on hard courts. He also has the U.S. Open title during that run. He also has a World Tour Finals title during that run. I mean, come on now. Like, he's back up to now. He drops out of the top 10 to start the month of February. He's back up to world number four after a 24-1 and two-month stretch that we will remember for quite some time. Again, I think this is the signature run of his career because he left 2019, that summer of 2019, looking really good and earning plenty of fall in summer of 2019. We're looking really good and plenty of Masters 1000 success, but hadn't backed it up the way he had coming into this 2023 season and see him go 18 and 17 uh, 18 and 7 last fall and 5 and 2 but a disappointing loss the way he just got blitzed by Corda at the at the Australian Open I mean again if to to elevate himself back into the tier 1 echelon with uh you needed to see this and he gave it to us and now there's no denying it and now Daniil Medvedev has done the one thing that maybe every guy in this post or throughout the course of this big three era has failed to do that has tasted the degree of success that Medvedev has he's backed it up he's just back he's a tier one guy for me and maybe you feel otherwise but again good luck hitting a winner against him Look, he's mentioned it. He's not as bad on clay as people seem to think. You look for Daniil Medvedev since the start of 2019 overall on the clay. Actually, that's fascinating. He's 8-7 and seven overall on the clay uh, since, since July of 2019. I guess that misses the full July 2019 clay court season. So let's just go since the start of July. Daniil Med, uh, since the start of, excuse me, the 2019 season, Daniil Medvedev overall on hard courts 24 and 24. 
wait, no, or on clay courts. There's no way he's 24 and 24. I'm not reading that right now. Eight and seven and eight and seven is 16 and 14. Leave this in. 16 and 14 plus eight and five would be 16 and 14 plus eight and five is 24 and 19. 24 and 19 on hard court since the start of 2019. Leave all of that math in. I apologize. Not my best podcasting, but you're right. That's not good. And you look for Medvedev. Best result on clay in 2019. Final Barcelona, semifinals Monte Carlo, lost first round French Open. 2020, lost first round French Open. 2021 quarterfinals French Open. That was a sneaky good run. Beats Bublik, Paul, Opelka, and Green before getting knocked out by Tsitsipas. Last year, round of 16, but of course was coming off of injury, gets knocked out by Chilich in the round of 16. He has continued to improve. He's extraordinarily confident. Again, how well will he move on the surface? That's going to define how well his results go. Obviously, the backhand, you know, a little less dynamic when it sits up on these hard, uh, on these clay courts, but... I'm interested to see the Medvedev's gotten so much better in putting away his forehand, so much more aggressive on that wing. I think it's going to translate well when he has a little bit more time on this clay court. I still have hope for Daniel Medvedev as a clay court player. I know he's 27 years old. It's not going to shock me when we see him in the quarterfinals of the French Open this year, and that's a testament to his physicality, but that's my hot take, is Daniil Medvedev is going to have a good 2023 clay court season. I don't know how hot of a take it is, but two 1,000 level quarterfinals are better, plus quarterfinals are better at French Open. I don't know if he walks away with a title, but I know he's going to have a, he's going to stay top five throughout the course of this clay court season. And again, has very, very few points to defend. So mathematically, that's certainly the option. As for Yannick Sinner, I know it was a disappointing ending just given how well he played down the home stretch against Alcaraz and the fact that, you know, he, the way he dominated Rublev and Dimitrov the way he did earlier in the event. It felt like this was going to be his signature breakout moment that time he captures that first 1,000-level title and there's just a collective acceptance that, yes, Sinner is on that same plane as—well, maybe not the same plane as Alcaraz, but he is unequivocally, and he already is unequivocally one of the guys to watch moving forward, but he's just unequivocally one of the guys now. Maybe you're not ready to put him there, but just for the record, Yannick Sinner in 2023— 21 and 5 overall. Here are the losses. Corda straight sets Adelaide. Let's not forget Corda was one of the 10 best players of the month of January. Sinner also injured in the second set of that match. First tournament of the year. I'm not making excuses. I'm just saying context key. Round of 16, five set loss to Tsitsipas in Australia. Tsitsipas went on to the final. Uh, Medvedev, final, Rotterdam. That was after he won the title the week before in Montpellier. He also lost that match in three sets to Medvedev, who he's been pretty good since the start of February, right? Uh, he lost to Alcaraz in the Indian Wells semifinals, 6-3. and three, Loses to Medvedev in the finals of Miami, 5-3. and three. So again, those losses. Korda, Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Alcaraz, Medvedev. In every event he played... The guy he lost who either went on to the final or won the title. You look at the ELO ratings right now. Yannick Sinner currently fourth in overall ELO rating. He trails Djokovic, Medvedev, Alcaraz. 2023 specific results. He's now third. He trails just Medvedev and Djokovic. You look at the live rankings. uh, Yannick Sinner currently sitting at number eight overall, which he'll stick at throughout the remainder of this week. So next week he'll be at a new career high of number eight. 21 years old. Tier 1. I don't know how else to say it. But speaking of Tier 1, if you don't believe me, let's turn to the stats. Because for the first time, folks, we have our top 10, 15, 2025 clubs as they relate specifically to the 2023 season. And again, we'll provide more context, depth on each of these topics as we reflect on the first third of the year throughout the course of this week here at Cracked Rackets. But Just your preliminary look through, again, about 20 matches for all of the top players in the world. Right now, on the WTA Tour, there are currently 11 players who rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Those players are top 10 club, Arena Sabalenka, welcome. Number two in hold percentage, number four in break percentage. Sabalenka holding serve over 84% of the time right now. She makes her top 10 club debut 
Iga Swiatek, the other player, of course, still in the top 10. Yeah, makes sense. I mean, again, who are her losses to? Krechikova, Rabakina. That's it this year, right? Yeah, makes sense. She's still as good as advertised. Top 15 in both hold and break percentage. Barbara Krechikova. Welcome back. That matches what we've seen with our eyes. The other one, Donna Vekic, makes sense. Again, she won the title in Mexico, played elite tennis to do so, was really good in Australia. That matches what I've seen from her over the course of the last six months. Top 20 club, again, pretty good at everything. Coco Golf makes sense to me. Victoria Azarenka, results might not make as much sense, but if you have eyes... Azarenka has been really good at everything, and she's moving really well. She's lost to players who go on to have all sorts of success here this year. I actually have no problem with Azarenka there. Madison Keys, the other top 20 club member, she was so good in the month of January, so that makes sense. And speaking of good in the month of January, Magda Lynette, top 25 club. The other three players, Sakari, Pliskova, and then you know I'm going to love this, Marta Kostyuk. The last player, the final member, 11th member of the top 25 club. It's Jack Draper-ish where it's just like I know those two are going to be really good for a really long time. I'm still not quite sure what the ceiling is, but yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me to see Kostyuk. That matches what I'm seeing with my eyes. For what it's worth, honorable mention, Jessica Pagula, second in break percentage, 26th right now in hold percentage. She should be on that list. It's a crime she's not. I blame the the math, but she gets honorable mention. Benchich, third in hold percentage. Excuse me, fourth in hold percentage, 26th in break percentage. I agree. She should be on the list as well. It feels like those two are missing. I would replace probably Lynette and Keys. Put Pagula and Keys' spot in the top 20 club. Put Benchich in that Lynette spot, top 25. Rabakina's 27th in break percentage despite being third in hold percentage. Gracheva would be a top 25 club member as well. Now, she doesn't rank top 10 in either, but 27th in hold percentage. She's top 25 in break percentage, and that makes sense because she's in that Bojkova range where you dominate qualities, you rack up a ton of wins. The stats are going to look good. That's where things stand on the women's side. Again, top 10 club, Sabalenka, Sviantec, top 15, Vekic, Krechikova, top 20, Goff, Azarenka, Keys, top 25, Sakari, Pliskova, Kostyuk, Lynette. Again, those clubs defined by break percentage, hold percentage, how frequently you're breaking serve, how frequently you're holding serve. On the men's side, eight, technic- uh, nine, excuse me, technically 10, Players currently ranked top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Now, Marin Cilic is in the top 15 club based off of one match, so I'm going to throw him out and say that there are actually nine guys. Novak Djokovic, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. I don't think anyone is going to have any objection to that. Medvedev, Sinner, top 15. Again, Sinner, 21-5. and He loses to players who make finals. He beats down everyone he's supposed to beat down. That makes a lot of sense with what I'm seeing with my eyes. I'm surprised Medvedev's not top 15. It's his hold percentage, actually, not his break percentage. But I guess Indian Wells, a slower hard court. He did struggle a little bit at times on the holding of serve, but the returning of serve, I mean, he's breaking over 35% of the time right now, second only to Alcaraz. It's a joke. So yeah, Djokovic top 10, Medvedev center top 15. Those are three of the five best players in the world right now. Top 20, Club Tiafo. Francis, welcome. The break percentage, catching up with the dominance we've seen on serve. The forehand return, significantly less of a liability of late. Holgaruna makes sense. He's just very good at everything. Karen Hatchinoff, yeah, you make semis of the Australian Open, semis of the Miami Open. He's very good at everything. Not elite in any one category, so it makes sense. He's not top 15, top 10 club, but seeing him top 20 club does make sense to me. And then top 25 is my favorite group. Korda, best month of January. He's been really good when we've seen him. Unfortunately, the injury bug bit him again. Carlos Alcaraz, duh. And then welcome to the club, Tommy Paul, top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Again, if I told you Tommy Paul was one of the nine best guys analytically of this 2025 season, uh, 2025, 2023 season, I think you'd believe me. I think that's accurate. And again, honorable mention-wise, we're not really missing anyone. Tsitsipas, no, the return of serve isn't there. Kasparud hasn't played well enough to belong on this list. 
Dimitrov's close. He's not top 20 in any category, but is 20 top, I think, 24th in hold percentage, 26th in break percentage. Benjamin Bonzi, 22nd in hold percentage, uh, in break percentage, excuse me, 27th in hold percentage. Yeah, again, those are the best guys in the world. Djokovic, top 10. Medvedev, Sinner, top 15. Tiafo, Runa, Hachnov have all been in that tier two conversation, top 20. And then Korda, Alcaraz, Paul, top 25. I guess you're missing Taylor Fritz, who right now 29th in break percentage. Maybe Cam Norrie currently 20, uh, 30th, excuse me, in hold percentage. Those might be the guys you'd expect to see. But a couple of Americans, Tiafo, Korda, Paul. American representation, it makes sense, right? They've been one of the biggest stories of the first third of the season. And again, that first third of the year, that's what we're breaking down here at Cracked Rackets throughout the course of this week. We also want to talk about the action happening across the ATP WTA Tours. You've got five events, including a loaded draw in Charleston. Of course, that Charleston event right near Miami, beautiful facility, Beautiful city, beautiful accommodations Ben Navarro provides. It's a loaded draw. I mean, your top seed's Jesse Pagula coming off of a Miami Open doubles title, semifinals, singles appearance. The two seed, defending champion, Anjabur. She's got to refine her form, obviously, with a ton of points coming up to defend. You've also got the aforementioned uh, Victoria Azarenka. She's your sixth seed. You've got players looking to, you know, uh, Madison Keys is in the mix. You've got the Daria Kasakinas of the world looking to turn things around. I mean, this draws everyone. Alexandrova, Benchich, Collins. I was looking. I was like, where is Kuder Matova? How is she not playing this event? Of course she is. She's the five seed. And she faces the winner of Diana Schneider or Alicia Parks, which, by the way, young American versus the NC State number one singles player and I mean, that's a cracked mat- rackets matchup extraordinaire. Two players with overwhelming amounts of power. Keep an eye on Sonia Kennan. Very dangerous in this draw. You've got Paula Bedosa, potential second-round matchup for her against Layla Fernandez. Again, this is the week after the Sunshine Swing. This is what's going down here in Charleston. Oh, yeah, Callan Skaya versus Kalanina. Just a round one matchup. Just a little ho-hummer there. Draw is absolutely, absolutely loaded right now in Charleston, and for what it's worth, your favorite to capture the event, Belinda Bencic, 14% favorite. I believe Bencic has captured the Charleston title back in 2022. Yeah, she's the defending champion. Excuse me. She beat Jabur in the final last year. I was like, that didn't sound right as it came out of my mouth, and that's why she's the favorite according to Tennis Abstract. They give her, excuse me, she's not. Jabur, 22.2% to Bencic's 14%, but again, given their recent form, I think that's why my slip of the tongue after that, Pagula, 10.6%. But Bedosa, Kuder, Matovar, over 6%. Kasakina, 7.1%. Now that we're back on the clay, Madison Keys, 5.7% again. It's a jam-packed draw in Charleston. You look at the live WTA rankings in terms of top 20 players playing Charleston this week. Again, the week after the Sunshine Swing has ended. You have eight players currently in the live ra- uh, top 20 of the live rankings Eight players in the top 20 of the live rankings, 11 players in the top 30. You have 13, 14 of the top 35. You have 17 of the top 40 players all playing in the draw in Charleston. Yeah, we got plenty of Charleston coverage coming up for you this week here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, your third WTA draw happening in Bogota. You know, the moment I said the other event, I was like, I bet Elisa Mertens is going to be the one seed. And lo and behold, Elisa Mertens is your number one seed, 27.7% chance of taking the title, of course. Interesting to see Sarah Saribas Tormo, the number 17 seed. She's got the second highest percent chance of winning the event. We haven't seen Saribas Tormo since the end of September, has been out with injuries. We'll be fascinating to see how she returns to form here. But, you know, again, dangerous unseeded players to watch for. Maybe this is a big Diana Yastremska week in the bottom half of the draw. It feels wide open, although Podoroska's played really good tennis. She's back in this draw. She looks to re make a charge towards the top 50, and now we're in her most advantageous portion of the calendar, the clay court season. So we'll keep an eye on Bogota, but again, 17 of the top 30, uh, 40 players playing in Charleston. Yeah, Charleston's going to be the focus for us on the WTA side of things. On the ATP side, I mean, pick an event out of the hat. 
If you want Esterol, cool. You've got Rude. You've got Hercott, Davidovich Fokina, defending champ Sebi Baez, Ben Shelton making his clay court debut. Of course, Dominic Team unseated in this event, as is unseated Nuno Borges, always dangerous on home soil. The 18-year-old Henry Garoka getting uh, in through qualifying. That's a fun storyline in Esterol right now. Rude, the favorite, 38.6%. Next closest, Hercots 14-3, Davidovich Fokina 11-1 after that. You've also got the ATP event in Marrakesh. Lorenzo Musetti looking to get something going. He has struggled to start his 2023 season. He's the top seed. He's not the favorite. That belongs to fourth-seeded Talon Greekspor, the Turns 27 this year. I know he's a 96, whether he has or not. I don't remember his birthday, which is rare. I actually think he's an October 96er, so I think he's one of us. No, July 96, loser. Um, he's a favorite. 22.9% makes sense, given he is currently sitting at a career-high ranking, has been lights out uh, throughout the course of this season, even if he had. I mean, look, he, he didn't play Miami, lost to Alcaraz at Indian Wells. Yeah, currently 35 in the rankings. That's a career high for Greek sport. He's your favorite, 22.9%. Then it's Botik Vandesen, Shkulp. Shout out to my two day, two days older birthday brother, 18.2%. Uh, Musetti, 16.4% after that. But keep an eye on two guys who had a lot of South American clay court success. A, eighth-seeded Nicolas Iari, who's got an 8.5% chance to win the title. Should he win his first-round match against the qualifier of Avasori, he will take on Helmut Munar, who is, of course, always dangerous on these clay courts. The last event, of course, happening in Houston. And look, it's really fun. Tiafo's the top seed. Tommy's the two. You've got Wolf, Nakashima, Jack Sock, Alexander Kovacevic, Stevie Johnson. A lot of fun Americans in action. Marcos Giron, of course, your number seven seed. You've got guys with college tennis ties and Alex Vukic and Emilio Gomez, Yannick Hanfman. It's going to be a fun event. Tiafo, the favorite, 24.2%. Then John Isner, 23.2%, maybe because it's the indoor hard courts of Houston. Then Tommy, 13.3%. Keep an eye on Echeverry. Keep an eye on Christian Green, unseated, plays Hugo Deli in round one. If Green can get through that, boy, is his first uh, is round two matchup versus Brandon Nakashima. A fascinating battle right there. Again, Five tour-level events. Sunshine Swing ended last week. Yeah, it's going to be a really fun week on the ATP and WTA Tours. And, of course, we'll have coverage of that and everything else happening in the tennis world this week here at Cracked Rackets. Of course, college tennis updates every Tuesday, Wednesday night, 9 p.m. Eastern time on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channels. Those are posted as podcasts the next day on the Great Shot podcast feed. A ton of fun interviews, if you haven't heard them already, over on our Cracked Interviews podcast feed. And, again, We'll be rocking and rolling across shows here this week as we try to get you cut up to date on everything that happened through the first third of the 2023 season. Of course, the reason we're able to do all that day in, day out is because of the support we get from all of you, from our dear friends at Tennis Point. A shout out to them, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. A shout out, of course, as well to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has a f- of an editing job to do day in, day out, publishing everything we do here at CR. It's hilarious. I really did think this was going to be a shorter podcast. And now I look up at the clock and it's been 53 minutes. So this feels like the perfect place to wrap today's show. Again, I thank you to all of you for tuning in for our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, and from all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone.